we're in this, uh, starting this new series today that's going to be our Christmas series. And uh, when we look at this series, I want us to kind of for a moment think about uh, the world in which we live and in particular the division uh, that seems to be very prevalent, uh, especially after this last couple months. Uh, it seems that our society is very divisive. And so uh, when we think about division, we have to understand that division a lot of times is not healthy uh, or helpful. All right, sports teams, uh, oftentimes you'll see a sports team that did so well at the beginning of the year who uh, struggled at the end that the reason why they struggled is because they were divided inside their locker room. And usually it comes out after the season's over and everyone starts saying, well, this is why we all lost. It was his fault. No, it was their fault. And <coughs> excuse me, and so on and so forth. So division isn't helpful on a sports team. It's also not helpful in a country, right? Uh, Syria right now is divided. They're in the middle of a civil war. And because they are divided, it's led to more atrocities uh, with the rise of ISIS uh, and other groups uh, who are taking advantage of the government not being able to control their entire country, and it's causing a lot more issue uh, than, than, than what was there before. All right, so division is not helpful in a country. It's not helpful in a family, and I've seen stories after stories of families who uh, become divided to the point that a brother no longer talks to brother and mother can't be around her children anymore. All right, division is never helpful. As we enter into this Christmas season, we think about all these divisions uh, and why they're there. Uh, it can often leave us in this place of despair where we really don't see a hope for a future. And I think that uh, the entire point of Christmas was to bring hope. I think Jesus came to bring hope not just to the Jews, but to the entire world. And I think the uh, Gospel of Luke shows us this hope in the story of Jesus' birth uh, better than uh, the other Gospels. And so we're going to be looking at uh, Luke this month. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke chapter 1 today. Uh, and we're just going to look at uh, the birth narrative of Christ uh, found in the book of Luke. Uh, the Gospel writers, as they were writing, they, were write, they write different stories and different focuses of the stories, and they do it because of the audience that they were trying to reach. Matthew uh, was writing to a Jewish audience, and so he tended to focus on the Jewishness of Jesus and on the uh, fact that he fulfilled prophecies and on the fact that he was a king uh, in the line of David. John, uh, writing much later than the other Gospels, uh, is writing uh, a couple of generations after Jesus was here, and so he will focus on the fact that Jesus was a man, was human, and so you focus on the humanity of who Jesus was. Luke uh, is writing to a Gentile audience. And so his focus is going to be on the fact that Jesus not only came for the Jews, uh, but he came for everybody. And so he will include stories of Gentiles uh, that were a part of the ministry of Jesus. And even within this birth narrative where it does focus on the prophecies and all the things that God had promised the Jewish people, he will focus also on the fact that uh, Jesus is the hope for the entire world. And we'll see that uh, throughout this month as we read this story. Uh, we're going to start today in uh, Luke chapter uh, 1, verse 5. 
Um, and so this is what uh, the first couple of verses say of this. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they both were very old. Uh, we are... Uh, we see that Luke is actually a very good historian. He is going to constantly be pointing to time periods in history. Uh, the first one that he points to is the fact that we are in the reign of Herod the Great. All right, this doesn't really tell us much because Herod reigned for like 35 years. So he, he was a long-reigning king. All right, so, but we can kind of assume from other, uh, the other Gospels that this is probably near the end of Herod's reign. All right, we, we probably talk about... Uh, probably 7 or 6 B.C. All right, so we're at the end of King Herod's reign, and Luke, as he's introducing his gospel, doesn't start with the Messiah. All right, he doesn't start with Jesus. Instead, he starts with two people, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we're told a couple of things about these guys to kind of set the scene for what's going to happen in this story. All right, Zechariah, he is a priest. All right, that means that he is a Levite from the uh, family of Aaron. Only Aaron's family could be priests. And he happened to marry a daughter that was also from that same family lineage. All right, and so they're married. Uh, he is from uh, the uh, group that were called the Abi from the division of Abijah. All right, and this uh, is going to be important later in this, this section, okay? Abijah was one of 24 divisions of priests. Uh, at this time, there were thousands of priests. And they, because they had so many priests and not enough jobs, what they ended up doing was dividing the priests into 24 groups. And uh, every week, a different group would come in. So Abijah would serve one week, and then they were off for 23 weeks before they came back and, and served again. Uh, and so that gives us 48 weeks. How many weeks are in a year? All right, we're talking a lunar calendar, so we have a, like 51, I think, or something like that. Uh, and in the lunar calendar, but you're right. So we're still short a couple of weeks, right? All right and the reason what they ended up doing is on the uh, very important feast where there was lots of people coming to Jerusalem, like Passover or Pentecost or New Year's, uh, the, one of the three feasts that everyone was supposed to come back to, then all of the priests would also come and serve that week. And so uh, you had your 24-week rotation on top of the three weeks that you were required to go there. And so that's kind of what's happening. He's of this division of Abijah, and as we're going to see, it's going to be his week to serve there. All right, so, so that's important. And when we're looking at these two, we, we're given a couple of information that I think is important uh, for us to look at. All right, the first thing that we have to understand is that it's been a pretty long time since God has spoken to his people through the prophets. All right, the last prophet to speak to the Israelites was Malachi, and he was 400 years before the time of Jesus. All right, and so for 400 years, they've had silence, and a lot has changed. Just think for a moment what 400 years has changed in our society. I mean, 400 years ago, there was no Mexico, Missouri, right? Where you're sitting, there might have been a tree or a field, all right? Uh, Indians probably lived where your houses were. 
all right? So a lot has changed in 400 years, all right? And, and, and for 400 years, the Israelites have gone from this uh, society that was coming back from the exile, realizing we need to follow God, to society that is all ingrained about following the commands to the letter of the law, uh, even if it doesn't affect who you are on the inside. See, the Israelites were very good at showing the people that they were good people. All right? So when they walked outside of their homes and everyone could see them, they did everything that God wanted them to do. But when they got back inside their homes, they didn't necessarily live it out there. And that's why Jesus, when he comes onto the scene, his major contention with the Israelites was that they were whitewashed tombs. He said, you're whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but what's on the inside? Death and rottenness. And so the Israelites, that's how they were living. They were living this life that looked good when, from, from looking out from the outside, but when it got onto the inside, it was nasty and dirty. And yet in this story, in this society that they lived in, we come across these two people, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they are said to be righteous and blameless. Now, there's only two other people in the entirety of the Bible that are called righteous and blameless at the same time. Any guesses? Yeah, go ahead. Abraham, no. Moses, no. Yeah. Oh, he has the. Oh, you're cheating. Okay, he, yeah, he can see my answers here. All right, the two people. One was Job. All right, God's talking to Satan, and he says, "Have you looked at my servant Job? He is righteous and he is blameless." And the second is Noah. That's it. Those those two, and then these two. There's four people in the entirety of the Bible that are both righteous and blameless. All right. Other people are called righteous. Sometimes they're called blameless, but never both of them at the same time. Now, we can talk about that later, why there's a difference there. Uh, It's not important, other than it's important to know that these are the only four that are called that. So these people are emulating these great men of faith. When we look at Noah, who's called righteous and blameless, he lives that despite what the rest of his world is living. I mean, Noah lived in a world where sin was rampant, and yet he lived a righteous and blameless life. And I think these two here are living this life where it not only looks good on the outside, but when you go into their home, you see that they are faithful there as well. And these are people I think we should emulate. In our society, we very much like people to see that we have it all together when we go out. When we post things on Facebook, we're posting our best. When we're talking about our lives, we want people to know we have it all together. But when we are secretly alone, the question is, do we? I think far too often we hide what's truly happening on the inside. We live in a world very much like what Noah lived in where sin is rapidly acceptable. And not only is it acceptable, we encourage it as a society. And even in that society, uh, in our society that is very much not 
living the way God wants us to live, we can, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, be righteous and blameless. We can do these things that they were doing, and we should do these things. So they're righteous and they're blameless. And I think this is something that we should be doing. And the divisions that we have uh, right now is because of sin. I mean, it's happening because sin is in there. One group hates the other group, and the things that they say, the hatred that they spew is sinful. It's divisive. And in this this blameless and righteous people, we are told at the very end of this section that something sad has happened to them. They are childless. And this would have been devastating in that society. See, in that society, uh, if you had a child, it was because God was blessing you. And if you were barren, it was because God was cursing you. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth, even though they lived righteous lives, even though they lived blameless lives, everybody that they came in contact with, probably in the back of their mind was thinking, well, what's wrong with you? What are you doing that you're not telling us? What sin are you trying to hide? And can you imagine living in a society that everybody thought that, and all the time you're living this righteous and blameless life, and yet you do not have a child, and so people question, are you truly righteous? I mean, I think it would wear down on me. But yet, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they Continue to live this righteous life despite their barrenness and despite what other people were thinking of them. Uh, the story continues in verses 8 and 10. Uh, it says that once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was uh, serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshiped there praying and we're praying outside uh remember that there was lots of priests all right and they had to divide them into divisions well even with that there were still not enough jobs for everyone to do there were some that everyone could do everyone could watch after the animals all right everyone could help with the sacrifice because they had lots of sacrifices everyone could go in and clean the temple everyone could go in and make sure that the lamps were ready but there was one job that everyone wanted to do but there just wasn't enough time to do it. Right? It's the burning of the incense. It happened twice a day. All right? Once at the beginning of the day, once at the end of the day. And so in your lifetime, you probably only got a handful of chances to do this. All right? You only served two weeks out of the year. All right? So that means you only had 28 chances to, to burn incense. And so how long are you a priest? Who knows? You know, maybe you start when you're 20 and you died when you're 50. So maybe you had 30 years to serve as a priest. And out of that 30, year, 30 years, you only had a handful of chances to do that. And so because of this, and everybody wanted to do it, what they decided to do was cast lots to determine who got to go in. All right, and so this lots, uh, it could have been they drew out a name. More than likely, they had pebbles in a bag, and one pebble was a different color. And they went down the line, and they cost you a pebble and whatever if it was the same color as everybody else you didn't get to do it 
But if you got the odd caller, you got the dude. That's uh, more than likely what they did. They were casting lots, okay? And it fell upon Zechariah to do this. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And so everyone is excited, not only him, but his entire family. And he does it while everyone is assembling for worship. And so that's kind of the scene that we're into. We know Zechariah and Elizabeth. We know Zechariah is going to go do something that was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity uh, that he's probably been preparing for his entire life for and just now is getting the opportunity to do it. All right, and so here's what happens uh, while he is there in verse 11. So that an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the Spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So uh, Zachariah is just doing his duty. He's, he's offering the incense. He's praying. And I imagine that he looks up and suddenly there's someone there right next to him. And he has two reactions. The first is he's startled. All right, and that makes sense, right? All right they, the Jewish religion... Uh, did not allow anyone to enter the temple except for the priests. And at the time of incense, Zechariah would have been the only one in there. And so he's probably come into the temple. He's probably looked around. He sees no one's there. He's offering the incense. And all of a sudden, someone's there that he didn't hear. So he's startled. My daughter, Hannah, uh, when we put her down for bed, uh, every once in a while decides to just get up. And we'll be in one room, and the lights are off in the house, and my wife will turn around, and there's Hannah. And every time this happens, my wife goes, ah! And I think someone's about to kill her or something. It happens every time, and she does it almost every day, not every day. And she says, right? Hannah, don't do this. And that's kind of what I picture here is Zachariah is doing his thing, and boom, startled. The second thing that happens is, He's afraid. And when we look throughout the uh, Bible, we see that anytime an angel appears, they are afraid. And I think it has to do with the natural order of creation. I mean, I kind of picture uh, us as human beings, we are the highest on earth in creative order. And yet everything that's below us can be startled by us. Now imagine an ant is crawling along the floor and you decided to stomp on the floor right in front of it, not on it, right? Right in front of it as hard as you can. What does the ant do? It runs away. It's scared for its life. It thinks that you're going to kill it, right? Right? Don't actually, well, my son will probably do that, but you shouldn't do that. It's mean. All right, and, and, and that's kind of what I picture here, okay? The angels are even higher than us. And when they appear, it just leaves fear in the hearts of men because angels, if they wanted to, could squash us like a bug. And so he's afraid, and, and the angel says to Zechariah, do not be afraid. Your prayers have been heard and are going to be answered. 
what prayers have you been praying for? A baby. He's been praying for a baby. And who knows how long he's been praying for this baby. I mean, he's probably been married for, we can assume, 20 plus years. And for 20 plus years, he's probably been on his knees day and night asking God, please let us have a baby. Can you imagine praying for 20 years for something that no one else I think this teaches us a lot about prayer and why this happens. I think it teaches us something about prayer. See, I think a lot of times when we want something from God, we pray one time. And when God doesn't answer it, we're disappointed in God. But I think prayer is supposed to be more than just asking God one time. Sometimes, yes, one t- God answers your prayer on the first time you ask. But more often than not, I think we are meant to pray over and over and over again. Jesus tells a parable, uh, and it goes like this in Luke chapter 18. And it says this on the screen. It says, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared for what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Give me justice against my adversary. And for some time, the judge refused. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And Jesus concludes by saying, listen to what the unjust judge said. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night, Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. And what the parable at the very beginning in verse 1 that we didn't read says is Jesus is talking about prayer. He says, this is how you should be praying. Like the widow that comes to the judge and is constantly bugging him. Right? Every day, hey, you need to give me justice. Hey, you need to give me justice. Give me justice. Give me justice. And eventually the unjust judge says, man, I just need her to stop it. And so he gives her justice because of her persistence. And what Jesus says is that is an unjust judge. How about our just God? What would he do? And if you're persistent in your prayer, Jesus says, God gives justice. And I think that's what we see here with Zacharias. He has been praying over and over and over again for a child. God, give me a child. And we're not told how old they are, but Zechariah is going to tell, say that his wife's pretty old. So she's probably way beyond the childbearing years. And even when there was no hope that his prayer would be answered, he continued to pray. God, give me a child. And his prayers have finally been answered. And the angels come to him and he says, not only are you getting a child, it's going to be beyond what even you can imagine. This child was going to be special. Many people would rejoice when they heard that John had been born. There's other people besides Zechariah and Elizabeth who have been praying for this child. 
There are friends and family who know Zechariah, know how blameless and righteous he is, and they have been praying for a child as well. And so when John is born, they will rejoice with great joy, just as Zechariah and Elizabeth. This child, because he is special, will have a special diet. He's not to drink wine or any fermented drink. And it reflects on something called a Nazarite vow. In the Old Testament, there was a special vow where you didn't cut your hair, you didn't touch dead bodies, and you didn't drink alcohol. And, and you did this vow and you didn't do these things. And it seems like that John is going to be a Nazarite from birth. One other guy was that, Samson. And he was great in the sight of the Lord as well. And this child, uh, something else very special that's going to happen to him is he is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The way uh, the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament compared to the New Testament is very different. In the New Testament, in the New Covenant, if you are a Christian, if you're baptized into Christ, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. All Christians have it. In the Old Testament, The Holy Spirit only came upon certain people at certain times to do certain things. Not everyone had it. And so for John to be promised the Holy Spirit, even while he is in the womb, shows how great he is going to be. And he's going to have a special purpose. He is coming to make straight the path for the Lord. To prepare the way for the Messiah to come. He is going to come to turn the hearts of men back to God. This society that it was all about how you looked on the outside, but not necessarily what was on the inside. John would come and shake that all up and say, no, what is on the inside is more important than what's on the outside. That's who John was. It was way beyond anything Zechariah could ever imagine. Well, even with this announcement Zechariah has some uh, doubts in verse 18 we read that Zechariah asked the angel how can I be sure of this you know I'm an old man my wife is well along in years she's old as well and the angel says to him I am Gabriel standing in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news and now you will be silent not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words will come true at their appointed time. This is uh, uh, follows along the typical birth announcements found in the Old Testament. An angel will appear, there will be fear, there will be assurance that you don't need to be afraid, and then there will be the announcement of the birth, and then following that there is a doubt and a sign to prove it. Uh, if you read in the Old Testament, different birth announcements, this is how they almost always follow. And so Luke, following that standard, shows this. And Zechariah, he, he uh, doubts that's going to happen because not only is he old, but his wife's old. Right? He says that. Right? That's probably why he actually got silent. Right? It's because he's calling his wife old. Right? No, just kidding on that. All right, uh, so he's, he's, uh, he's do, he says this, and, and the angel says, well, you know what? It's going to happen. The way you know it's going to happen is because you're going to be silent. Right? No more talking. And so uh, that's all happening while he's offering these incense. Uh, Verse 21, we read that the people were waiting outside. They were wondering, 
what's taking so long? It's not supposed to take this long. What's happened? And so when Zechariah comes out, uh, he cannot speak. And so they realize he's had a vision because he keeps pointing and making all kinds of great signs because they didn't have sign language. All right. And so he's just making all these signs and they realize something's happened in there. And then Zechariah goes home in verse 23 after his time is complete, after his week of service is over and his wife gets pregnant. And she hides herself for five months. Why? We're not told. Maybe because she's so fearful that she might miscarry and she doesn't want everyone to get excited and and all that stuff. Maybe uh, she's just hiding. Maybe it's just one of the things that we do in this time. Uh, And and in that time frame, when she's realized this is really happening, she gives thanks to God and says, the Lord has done it. The Lord has done it. So what can we learn? there's two things that we can pick up from this story. The first is we need to be like Zechariah and Elizabeth. We need to be living righteous and blameless lives in the midst of whatever society we find ourselves in. Whether our society is all about what we look like on the outside and what we show people and we really are nasty on the inside, or whether our society is just living in sin like the days of Noah, we need to be people that are righteous and blameless. And the divisions that we see in our society, the only way that there will be true unity is if we are living those righteous lives. The second thing I think we can learn is the power of persistent prayer. 20 plus years of praying for the same thing over and over again. When's the last time you prayed for something? we give up too easily in our prayers. And we need to be people that are persistently praying for something, not just once, not just a handful of times, but day and night. And I think when we do that, we have a just and God who will answer those prayers. Let us be righteous in Father God, we're grateful for Zechariah and Elizabeth and the lives that they lived. I pray, God, that we can emulate them, that we can be men and women of God who are living good, godly, blameless, righteous lives. I pray, God, that in our prayers, uh, that they will not just be things that we pray once, but that will be things that we pray over and over again, persistently begging you to answer. And we know, God, that when we are persistent, you are faithful, that you will answer according to your will. And I pray, God, that you will hear our prayers answered. I ask all these things in your name.